0: Start a 30-day free trial at walmartplus.com. Paramount Plus, a central plan only. Separate registration required. See Walmart Plus terms and conditions.
1: Luxury is meant to be livable. Discover the new leather collection at Ashley with premium quality leather sofas, recliners, and more, all built to last.
2: Hi, everybody. Welcome to a bite of the Big Apple. We're going to take a bite of the Big Apple and talk to a guy that you might have heard of. Uh, His name is Shep Messing. He uh, obviously made his mark uh, with New York Cosmos back in the late 70s. And it just dawned on me, I know this guy 46 years. Holy smoke. You're you're old. (laughs) Hey, Howard, you know, you gave that introduction
3: and it's a pleasure to be with you you're you're not only a colleague they, we go way back i didn't realize it was 46 years but you were along for the ride when the new york cosmos hit new york city and uh, yeah those were good times back in those days
2: well it's uh, i'm trying to figure out what a guy who was born in the bronx grew up on long island how did you get to harvard
3: <laughs> you know my son my son likes digging into into you know little little trivia and he he realized he he tried to figure out how many people were born in the bronx graduated from harvard and played in the olympic games (laughs) and he came up with a number of like eight really yeah i think only eight people born in the Bronx graduated from Harvard, and played for the U.S. at the Olympic Games. So that that's a pretty small number.
2: Hey, I would I would imagine, I could, besides you, I can't think of anybody else. <laughs>
3: Listen, uh, as you know, I'm also in a, in a bunch of Jewish halls of fame, and that's a limited <laughs> amount of guys, too. You know, Sammy Koufax, uh,
2: myself, a couple of others. Uh, a guy named, uh, before your time and my time, is a guy named Sid Gordon, who played baseball with the New York Giants. He, he's in that same category. Um, I'm trying to figure out <clears throat> the shortest list. Let me see. Love Story featured Ryan O'Neal and Allie McGraw, and they were up in Boston. And I think one of them, I think Ryan O'Neill went to Harvard. And then, because um, try- I spent four years up in Boston doing the Celtics. That's a very historical city in so many ways.
3: Listen, Howard. It's so you and I have so many things in common. And you mentioned the love story. I mean, I was at Harvard at the time. You're right. Ryan O'Neill uh, was a hockey player in the movie. Uh, played it. Played for Harvard. Allie McGraw, who my wife looks very similar to, we yep. met up in Boston when that movie was coming out. The love story. And I'm strolling around campus uh, with with my soon-to-be wife who looks like Ali McGraw. I don't think I look like Ryan O'Neill, but, you know, those were the days. It was a, a special time. You know Boston. I mean, Boston, one of the greatest sport cities in the country. And, uh, you know, some great times I had up there.
2: Well, that, even more important than that is the North End has the greatest restaurants. I mean, it's a, it's a, it's a little Italian section of, of the city of Boston. Where you can walk ten feet and find another good restaurant.
3: Yeah, I know it well. I explored the city. Uh, look, Cambridge by itself had its own unique charm, especially back back in those days. I'll tell you a funny story, which you'll appreciate. Maybe our our older listeners will. Uh, I was I was at Harvard playing. I was an all American on the soccer team, playing for the Olympic team at the same time in qualifying. But in Cambridge, uh, you know, I'd, I'd work at a bar uh, on the weekend. Huh. Lots of little little folksy, folk singing bars in in Cambridge. So I'd work on a Friday, Saturday night, and and I'd pour beer, and there was a young girl there with a, a great voice playing guitar. Uh, I thought she was a student there as well. Uh, many, many years later, when the Cosmos hit, hit that you know big publicity tour we were well known all across the country and i got a phone call from a, a woman and she said hi chef do you remember me uh, my name is bonnie i said bonnie I, I i don't know how do i know you she said you were pouring beer at that bar in cambridge i was playing the guitar her name was bonnie ray huh. So, you know, funny how your worlds collide, but young Bonnie was was playing the guitar looking for tips. Years later, when the Cosmos uh, got famous, Bonnie Raitt became more famous.
2: That's interesting. He's Shep Messing, a longtime uh, uh, friend and guy that I associate. We'll get into the Cosmos thing in a little bit. I wanted to kind of give you a little bit of heads up. Uh, when we, we, my wife and I lived in a, in a community in Boca Raton, Florida. It was the same community with Dick Stockton and Leslie Visser when they were together. And uh, Leslie, as you well know, was very well known in Boston. She started at the Boston Globe and went on to become a famous sportscaster at CBS. So we're having dinner one night in Boca Raton, I said, Leslie, you realize that my wife got into the press box at Harvard Stadium before you? She said, really? I said, yeah, I started my broadcasting career in Princeton doing their football and basketball games. And so we had we had a game at Harvard. And unbeknownst to me, women were not allowed in the press box at Harvard Stadium. And so I said to the guard up there, he, they called him tiny. He was 350 pounds. He said, she can't come in here. And I said, she has a press pass. He says, I don't care. She can't come in here. Women are I said, Uh, Tiny, uh, she's coming in. She's my statistician. Well, she's going to have to get by me. I said, Tiny, you're not going to look good rolling down 90 steps. (laughs) So she's going in. Well, we get through all of that and we walk in the press box, every head turned. Because they never saw a woman in the press box before. So I'm telling Leslie the story. She said, I heard that story. And you know what? Here's the addendum to the story. The students got so angry about the policy, they burned down the press box the following year. <laughs> good, and, for, and they, good for them. And they built a new, they built a new press box. Um, shep talk about you. You mentioned the U.S. team, uh, but you actually played in the Pan Am games before that in Cali, Colombia. Man, you've been all over the world. Look, you know, Howard, again, starting in the Bronx,
3: moving to Long Island, soccer opened up the world to me. It opened the world to me. Uh, I played in the Maccabiah games the year before the Pan-American games. First time I had been out of the country, played in Israel. And then that following year, played in the Pan-American games down in in Colombia. We had games in Bogota, games in Cali, and, and soccer is that universal thread that really mm. connected me to the rest of the world. Yeah. Now, obviously in Olympic qualifying, we had to go through what is called the CONCACAF region. So that included Central America, Costa Rica, El Salvador, Guatemala, Mexico was the big hitter in the CONCACAF. Really the first time I had gone out to travel around the world, and soccer soccer was that uni- unifying theme, and, and you know, you were with us during the the height of the cosmos we would play a season here and then we tour the world we go to asia we go to europe wow. we'd Go to south america and and soccer did more than provide a living for me it opened my eyes to the world
2: and then we go to 1972 and for people that are not familiar with history 1972 olympics was in munich germany and it was also a time when there were the biggest story than the Olympics was the massacre of American Jewish athletes. Now, you were living in those quarters where, those, where that massacre took place. How close were you?
3: Yeah, so Howard, I, I think I've told you this story before. I'm sure I have. Look, again, growing up, for me, the Olympics were always a dream, right? A childhood dream. I remember having uh, when I was 10 years old in my backyard having an Olympics birthday party, sort of like an obstacle course. You had to do a million things, but you dream of playing in the Olympics. At that age, I I didn't know what sport, but playing in the Olympic Games for the U.S. was always a a childhood dream. And, And we actually became the first U.S. soccer team ever to go through qualifying and make it to the actual Olympic Games. The U.S. had always gotten eliminated before. So that dream for me, since I was 10 years old, it culminated in, in going to Munich, first flying to Washington, the White House, meet the president, fly to Germany. And and those Olympic Games for me were a dream come true until, until about four o'clock in the morning, uh, I got a knock at my door the israeli compound which was the one that was attacked by the black september group of terrorists it was about 15 20 yards away from my window directly mm. on the same corner so at 4 a.m i got a, a knock at my door obviously didn't know who it was opened the door and there were two german soldiers with machine guns uh, standing there and they said are you shut messin And I I froze until I didn't know what was going on, took a step back, was prepared to lunge at one of these guys. Then I saw the police badge and I said, yes, I'm Shep Messing. He said, you're Jewish. I said, yes. And he said, come with me. And they took the Jewish American athletes under protective custody because at the moment They didn't know whether the attack was just against the Israelis or all the Jews in the village. And, and, you know, frightening is an understatement. Uh, The world watched because really, you know, back in those days, television was really the only access. So the wide world of sports, ABC, Jim McKay, Howard Cosell, they were all in the Olympic Village with us in Munich, and they were reporting this story all around the world. Uh, It ended in in the murder of 11 athletes and coaches, uh, the Munich 11, and I got on the next plane when it was over and flew home. Uh, So the Olympic dream growing up turned into the ultimate tragedy.
2: I remember watching McKay when he made the announcement. Yeah. And all I remember him saying was, they're all gone and I look on his face, uh, it was like somebody hit him with a two by four and he had this look of this dour expression on his face. And, I, and I'm and i thinking to myself, okay, uh, I can only imagine what that must've been like, but how long after that did, did you have that recurring nightmare?
3: I still have it, Howard. Really? Yeah. And, and, and look, I'm proud to represent the US, I always was. Uh, I'm not sure whether you follow it but just this past week our u.s soccer team failed to qualify right for the
2: olympics right Over lost weekend, to honduras right they played honduras right.
3: and and they lost two to one and and for the third cycle in a row uh you know our u.s soccer team is not going to the olympics and so do i have the nightmare every night not every night but you know, watching this game over the weekend against Honduras, I, I, you can't not think about the, the experience I had. Uh,
2: I, can, I can understand it. Um, my uncle was in Korea and uh, 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 he was an enlisted man and two officers in front of him in the ranks were both killed in action. And he got a field commission and became a captain overnight. And when he came back from Korea after a year and a half, almost two years, he had that recurring nightmare every night for like 10 years after that and even beyond. So I understand what you're saying. And then furthermore, uh, I was in Tripoli, Libya, when I was in the Air Force during the time that Gaddafi took over Libya with the assistance of Nasser from Egypt uh, in 1969 and I'm there, and I wasn't involved in combat, I wasn't involved, in, but I did see a lot of things that have come into my mind. So I understand what you went through. It's, you, you do not wanna be in a foreign country when there's conflict.
3: Listen, it always, the closer it to home that it is to you, one of the Israeli athletes that was murdered, David Berger, was a friend of mine. You mentioned the uh, Pan American games, He was actually a lawyer from Cleveland with dual citizenship, a weightlifter. And I had known David from the Macabee Games two years before in Israel and then in the Pan-American Games. And then, you know, we we reunited in the Olympic Village in Munich. And and, and again, you look at the world today, Howard, and you know how it was back then? There was no security, none. The terrorists got into the village. You know, we the athletes, and you know how athletes are, there was only one main gate to the village mm. and, and, and an eight, eight foot fence that you could climb over. So we'd sneak out into town after the game or after practice, go into Munich, have some beers. And when we came back, you our track suits, we'd, we'd wave to the guards at the, <laughs> at the main gate and then we'd hop over the fence. That was the extent of security. And and that's how the terrorists replicated us wearing track suits, hopping <laughs> over the fence. Uh,
2: he Shep messing. Uh, uh, with, let's let's get closer to the present day. After the Olympics, you came back to the United States and you, and you joined the Cosmos the first time, right? I did. You know, again, I, I'm in
3: college. I'm an all-American. I go to the Olympic Games, and I find out I'm I'm drafted by a team that I never heard of, the New York Cosmos. So I was playing soccer then because I loved it. I didn't even know there was a pro team or a pro league. And, and I signed to play for the Cosmos, went down to training, the coach liked me, and and I played two years before they they finally put me on waivers. The team was no good. We were playing in front of 800, 1,000 fans. Uh, And I just didn't make the grade. So, you know, that we always talk about before Pelé and after Pelé. And you're right. That was my first time playing for the Cosmos. I I hooked up with the Boston Minutemen, brought me back to to Boston. And I turned turned out leading the league in goalkeeping that year. And I'll, I'll tell you a little tangent to that. About 10 years ago, Susan Waldman, who you, of course, know from the Yankees. you sure. We all do. Yeah. Susan came up to me 10 years ago and she said, Chef, you don't remember me. <laughs> I said, Susan, I, I don't know that we've ever met. I mean, I'm a big Yankee fan. I watch you all the time. She said, I was singing the national anthem before your games when you played for the Boston Minute. <laughs> I, I didn't know Susan, you know, had that background. You know theater voice and anyway i led the league in goalkeeping and and i'm up in boston and i pick up the newspaper and i read that pelle has signed for the new york cosmos wow. And you know i just shake my head howard i said you got to be kidding me if, if i hadn't screwed up in new york if i hadn't if i had played better if i if if, if I were a better teammate, I'd still be on that team. And, and that, now I'm in Boston, I'm really, really angry that I missed the opportunity. Well, very quickly, I'll, I'll get to the happy ending, which was every game we played that year went to penalty kick shootout. There was no such thing as a draw. Right. So I go Boston Miniman. We've come to Yankee Stadium to play against Pele. First time I've ever met him, seen him, and now I'm playing against him. Well, the game goes 0-0. We go to a penalty kick shootout. Pele takes the fifth kick. I get a fingertip on it. I make the save, and my team, Boston, wins the game. The next week, the Boston uh, New York goalkeeper, Bob Rigby, breaks his collarbone. Right. Pelé says, I want the Boston goalkeeper. That's how I got traded back from Boston
2: and got reunited with the Cosmos. And so I got involved with the Cosmos in 76, and they were still playing at Yankee Stadium. And I remember standing in the end zone, uh, opposite end zone, where the Cosmos were attacking. And Pelé takes his famous bicycle kick. That ball curved had to be at least 15 yards in the air. And I went, oh, and he scores a goal. I went, holy smoke. I mean, uh, look, there's, I mean, so many Pelé stories. I know you're very close to him, but here's a guy, when he came to the United States, whether the New York fan uh, was a soccer fan or not, everybody knew who Pelé was, the greatest soccer player in the world. Now he's playing in New York. And I remember a playoff game, I think it was against Fort Lauderdale, when there was a sellout. There was 77,000 people there. That had never been done in the United States where there was that big a crowd. And, and the Cosmos won the game on the way to winning the championship. Before we go any further, and I don't want to embarrass you, Chet, because I have too much respect for you, but let's talk about the final game, the championship game against, uh, I think it was Seattle in Portland, Oregon. There was a a little bit of a story attached, and nobody knew about it until after the game. I knew about it because you let me in on it, and I didn't betray your confidence. Tell me about the reason why you wore gloves to the game before the game.
3: (laughs) Howard, you're my guy. You're my guy. So, yes, I'll build up to the story because... I'll never forget that day that you alluded to against Fort Lauderdale in the playoffs before it, we went to the championship game. Seventy-seven thousand people packing giant Stadium, uh, record crowd in the history of the sport here. And I'll go back one year before because as that crowd built, you know, built up, it didn't happen overnight, and and I'll never forget it was father's day of that same year 1977. i used to pick up franz beckenbauer because he lived in new york city and i driving from long island i'd pick up franz we'd go through the lincoln tunnel we'd head to giant stadium and it was june father's day of that year that we're hitting traffic unbelievable i get through the lincoln tunnel it's bumper to bumper and i figure you know it's got to be a massive Accident, a truck, a car, something. Franz, and you know Franz, he's like Panic. Mm. He's a G- in German. Hey, Chef, <laughs> we're, we're going to be late. But hey, you got to go a different He's like Catatonic that we're going to be late. You know, the the button up Franz Beckenbauer. I said, yo, calm down, man. And I'm starting the game without you. You're, you're Franz Beckenbauer. Anyway, we finally get there. It was a crowd, it was the first giant crowd that we ever had there. Over 60,000 people, and then it only built from there to the crowd of 77,000 you talked about. So the night before the championship game, why did I wear gloves in the bus going to the stadium? Again, Franz Beckenbauer is involved in the story. I had a contract with Puma, right? And Franz was with Adidas, right? And Fr- Franz, Adidas had sent in these special shoes. The game was being played on AstroTurf out in Portland. And Franz had all these special design shoes for the AstroTurf from Adidas sent to the hotel. And, you know, look, for me, it's a championship game. So I want to wear Franz's Adidas shoes, but I had a contract with Puma. So I'm sitting in the hotel with a razor cutting the stripes off of the Adidas shoe because I was gonna wear them. And, and sure enough, I sliced my hand and it's bleeding all over the place. And I'm thinking I'm gonna miss the biggest game of my life. And, and so I wore gloves the whole afternoon and night. I don't know when you came to my door, but you're you're one of the few people that knew the real story.
2: Well, I my room at the hotel was next to yours. And so uh, you had come out in the hall and I saw you with the gloves on. I said, why are you wearing gloves? He goes, Come inside. He said, you can't tell anybody. And I said, what happened? He said, I cut my hand. I said, I, don't worry about it. Your secret's good with me, and I wouldn't betray it no matter what. But I remember you're getting on the bus, and Eddie Fermati was the coach, and he said, why are you wearing your gloves? I said, well, the new gloves, and I'm just kind of just breaking them in. <laughs> but the interesting thing was, when the game was over, and I'm interviewing players in the locker room after the game when Jim Carvelis is still upstairs, uh wrapping up the broadcast. And uh, I come to you for an interview and you had you still had the gloves on and the white uh I guess gauze that you wore uh was was red. It was it was your blood. And uh <laughs> he said, did you didn't tell anybody I said, I didn't tell us all. You can you take my word, I did not tell us all. And then you you finally let let the world in on it. But the thing I remember about that game was Steve Hunt from England scored the winning goal, and it was two to one, as, as I recall, was the outcome. And yeah, uh, so, yeah, I know what story you're talking about. You know, go, go ahead, ahead finish first. it. Yeah, it was
3: the first goal. I mean, Stevie Hunt. There, the opposing goalkeeper was Tony Chursky, great goalkeeper. And I, I'll give you a secret now, as I tell the story that very few people know. So Tony Chursky had the ball in his hands. Steve Hunt had attacked. Chursky got to the ball first, picked it up, looked around, put it down. He was about to play the ball out and he didn't see Stevie Hunt right. sneaking up behind him. And when Chursky put the ball down on the ground to play it out, Steve Hunt nipped it, stole the ball, put it in the back of the net. It turned out to be a game-winning goal. Right. And Howard, what nobody knows, and I have the utmost respect for Tony... Chursky, great guy, great athlete, great goalkeeper. Tony Chursky is deaf huh. in one ear, huh. and his teammates his teammates were shouting at him right in the middle of the stadium. But the teammates were on the side of Tony that he had no hearing, and they were shouting at him, "Man on, man on!" and, and Tony couldn't hear him, obviously. And look, Chursky played a great game. Uh, you know these things happen uh it was almost poetic justice and you know you know pelé you know that team you were with us how how would it have been if we had lost that game you got to win that final game for pelé
2: sure there's no question a quick pelé story the year before you guys lose in ten, uh, 4 to 1 to tampa in the playoffs when yeah. four, and 4 to 1 in soccer is a blowout um yeah. and i remember the, the, the team bus was waiting for Pelé to get on the bus. He was at the gate Signing autographs and there had to be 200 kids out there. He signed every single Autograph next morning. Well, I guess we're getting ready to go up to the plane or go get on a bus to go to the plane and I see Pelé in the coffee shop and I said to him Why did you we're not used to seeing guys stand there and sign autographs all those kids and in his broken English? He said we lost the game But why should I take it out on the kids? He signed every single autograph, let not one kid go without getting an autograph. I thought that was impressive because we're not used to that.
3: Howard, I'm glad you told that story because I, I see the same thing and I tell that similar story every place I go. And, and you're absolutely right. That's what Pele said. That's what he always says. I've seen him do it in Rome, in Tokyo, all over the world. He will never turn away from, from a child. And he said, yeah. I lost the game. Why should they go away unhappy? He is really, and you know him, I mean an unbelievable, humble, modest, decent, good guy. And and you talk about role models, how an athlete in, in, in this day and age should act. Just look at Pelé. Look how he, how he acts and, and try and be like that.
2: You still stay in touch with him, don't you?
3: Yeah, I do. We we got a lot, a lot of old war stories. We both have hip replacements. <laughs> we have we have dinner in New York. Uh, you know, not recently in the pandemic, but uh, he's he's got family here. He co- comes often, and we always get together.
2: He's now. Uh, I want to guess he's about seventy nine, eighty years old. Is that right? You nailed it. Eighty.
3: Yeah. 80, I, because,
2: and yeah. He did a, a video tribute they were doing for his eightieth birthday
3: uh you know down in brazil so they reached out to a lot of his old teammates to you know send a little video
2: well that was a magical year because if i remember there was a trip uh where you guys played a game in hawaii and also a game in las vegas and in las vegas uh was standing in my wife and i are in the lobby and pele came over and uh he said hello and so on he says what are you doing and i said we're just kind of hanging out he goes come with me Next door, he—I forget the name I forget the name of the, we stayed at, um, I forget the name of the hotel, but next door was Caesar's Palace, and he was invited to come over, uh, Hal Linden and Alan King were the, were the attractions on the marquee, they invited him to come over, and he brought, my wife and I, and a couple of other people, and we went, and he, they gave him, and he, he was asked to stand up, and they gave him a standing ovation at Caesar's Palace. <laughs>
3: I got I gotta tell you you know, you and I go way back, I'll give you another story about this that weekend in Las Vegas that I don't think you know about. So I remember the hotel and and not sure if you remember, but at the same time the next day there was a a a tennis match, an exhibition being put on. Jimmy Connors Mm. against Ely Nastasi, right? Right for a hundred thousand dollars. So while you were at Caesars Palace with your wife and Pele, we were gambling in the casino at our hotel. Well, at nine o'clock, Jimmy Connor said, I gotta go to sleep, right? He was that kind of guy. I'm gonna go have some milk, I'm not gambling, I'm not drinking, I'm going upstairs. Well, Ily Nastasi, you know what kind of character he was? Yeah. We stayed up until two, three in the morning. And the next day, Ily Nastasi he said, I'm not playing at 1 o'clock. The ten, he said, I, I'm going to watch the Cosmo game. you got to re- reschedule this tennis exhibition. He he was a character, but that's what Pele means to people all over the
2: world. Taking a bite of the Big Apple with Chef messing a great goalkeeper, with the United States Olympic team and, of course, the New York Cosmos. The thing that was the – I mean, the Cosmos, it wasn't a soccer team. It was a happening. And you guys – I mean, you owned the city during that time.
3: Howard, you you know this better than than anybody else. Look, there are a lot of factors that go into something like the cosmos lighting up the city and lighting up the world. First of all, for the most part, the big names in New York had gone, right? Joe Namath was gone. Walt Clyde Frazier was was gone from the Knicks. Uh, It was only Reggie Jackson really coming in 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 the late 70s. But New York, for the first time in a long time, didn't have any major stars like Clyde, like Joe Namath. I think Roger Gilbert was still, still there, but Namath and Clyde, two big names, they were gone. And New York City, you know it in the 70s, the son of Sam that summer, the city was bankrupt. There was a blackout. I mean, this city needed something, and there's nothing like a sport team that can take a city on their shoulders. And, and Pele and Franz and Carlos Alberto and Warner Brothers and Steve Ross, look, it didn't happen all by accident. The owners, as you know, Warner Communications, Steve Ross, Ahmed Erdogan, they knew that they had to marry the music industry to the biggest stars in the sport that they were bringing to New York. So they'd have, you name it, Peter Frampton, Mick Jagger, Liza Minnelli, uh, Robert Redford. They'd have those people at the Cosmo Games and then go, go into Manhattan to Studio 54. So it was splashed over the papers, you know, all over New York City. It was just it was just everything aligned and, and, and this, this team captured the imagination of New York and the country and, and really
2: the world. Well, you know, anytime you played on the road, the visiting stadium uh, was always packed like no other game that they ever played because of the attraction of Pele, Beckenbauer, Kinalia, um Steve Hunt. Uh, Dennis Tuart was on that team, as I recall. Um, I mean, there was, and of course Carlos Alberto one of the classiest people that i've ever come across
3: yeah carlos was was everybody's man a, a dear friend class he wore that jacket like a european over his shoulders yeah. uh, a charming smile a gentleman but they were all it was a collection of of superior athletes howard and you've been around sports your whole life these guys were superstars but but you know it's like they were like rock stars In the countries they came from, Beckenbauer couldn't go out for dinner in Munich. Helle couldn't walk the streets in Brazil. Giorgio Canalia was loved or hated in Italy, in Rome. And and, and now all of a sudden they're all living in New York City, playing on the same team. I, I never forget Beckenbauer. They did a movie once in a lifetime. And in the movie, Beckenbauer said, listen, I've played on world cup winning teams i've played on bayern munich we've won eight european cups 12 bundesliga championships he said but on the new york cosmos i played with pele with 14 different nationalities in germany only with german players on the cosmos it was the best time of my life so a special time for those guys and, and a special time for all of us that were along for the ride.
2: Yeah, well, I could talk to you all day. I, you know what, I'll call you a little bit later on, but i got to get moving now with this, uh, with this podcast. Uh, pleasure talking to you, Shep, obviously, and most importantly, you stay safe.
3: Howard, you stay well, love you, and thanks for having me on.
2: The great Shep Messing, joining me on a bite of the Big Apple. Those were great times long time about 45 years ago my god one of us is getting old i think it's me (laughs) wow what an experience that was uh it was um, was a lifetime experience never forget it never ever forget it